Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 29 of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing great, Sarah. Yourself? Not too bad. I can't believe we're up to 29 episodes. That is crazy. How do we get there? Uh, I don't know. A lot of luck, maybe? Probably, probably. But uh, <laughs> I think uh, it's, it's because of your hard work. You're the one that keeps this thing moving along. Well, I try. You're and... doing a, a stand-up job, I have to say. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Um, and today we have another amazing guest on. Yeah, this almost feels like a special episode because of uh, how uh, much he has done in the last couple of years with the pandemic, but throughout his whole career, obviously, but certainly much more uh, limelight lately. Uh, Dr. Andre Khalil, one of our esteemed colleagues here at UNMC. Andre? Hey, guys. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Rick. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. So why don't we start out with telling our uh, listeners a little bit about what you're doing right now. All right. So, you know, the, um, at this point, I mean, uh, we are uh, wrapping up um, uh, a good number of a, um, studies that uh, we've conducted here at UNMC in conjunction with other places in the country, um, trying to, um, at the same time, uh, uh, just kind of somewhat feeling closer to to normal in the sense that, uh, you know, clinical activities, patient activities, um, just kind of a little bit uh, more like the way that uh, uh, it was before the pandemic. And uh, so it's it's kind of just, uh, you know, one of these situations that goes up and down with, uh, with the waves during the last couple of years, but it is a good feeling to see a much less, uh, you know, much less uh, patients are being admitted with a severe COVID as we had before. Um, and, and kind of, uh, you know, during the springtime too, it's kind of nice to see, even though when we had snow yesterday, I, I, I thought I would be going home and shovel all the snow and turns out that actually <laughs> the snow was already melted. It was like, yes, yes, that was great. <laughs> I love it. It was just fantastic. So, you know, it, it's a combination of things between the springtime and the fact that, uh, you know, we are definitely seeing a, a much better situation with the COVID as well. So I think it's, uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, where things are at this point, but very important to your question, Sarah, is to, you know, we, we have to be prepared uh, for the war. So hopefully things are going to keep improving day by day. And, uh, but, um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen a month or two from now. And, uh, and so I think it's, um, we learned many, many lessons during the last two years. One of them is that, uh, you know, we got to be humble and be always prepared because you never know when these viruses are going to mutate and going to do something different. So, uh, you, you know, you, you just, you just want to be prepared. And I think we've done a fantastic job here at UNMC. I really, I have to tell you, uh, Sarah and Rick, that one of the lessons, <clears throat> you know, I've done research for clinical research and clinical care for over 20 years. And, but one of the things that I think that that really, really uh, made a huge difference in the last two years for us was to work together. Uh, I think that really, and, and Rick, you can chime in on this as well. I think that each one of us 
have a little bit of a different expertise, different experience, uh, you know, uh, both life-wise, professional-wise, personal-wise. And, you know, in, in, in March, February, March, 2020, when things really got, uh, you know, just suddenly terrible uh, out of, you know, really out of nowhere, almost two months, uh, got into this pandemic. And, you know, we, we really, uh, I think we, uh, we just uh, came to a point where we, uh, you know, we decided working together would be the only way to, uh, to move forward. And, and, and we did fantastic. I think a lot of places in the world uh, did the same, but I, I, you know, our experience here, this is what I can talk for is, uh, has been just tremendous. And this is important because sometimes, <clears throat> you know, uh, people don't realize the, the, the amount of diverse knowledge that's needed uh, to defeat this kind of situation. So, you know, you, you not only need uh, the clinicians, the nurses, the technicians, everyone on the bedside, but you need, you know, everyone that is kind of behind the scenes working to making sure that the hospital keeps functioning, that the everyone is safe, that every worker is safe, every patient is safe, that, you know, the communications between ourselves in, inside a hospital and outside in the community, everything is, is clear, concise, and understandable. So all all the things have been just uh, a, a truly, truly amazing. I think that uh, that would, I would say, one of the biggest lessons from from us as community, from us as as citizens of uh, the state of Nebraska, of this country, is is to understand that there is only one way for us to defeat this kind of situation, uh, like a pandemic, is is working together, working together, even. You know, even when we have uh, disagreements, uh, these disagreements will actually become part of how can we find better solutions. So it, that's really, I would say, the um, the thing that to me, uh, Sarah, has been so important up to this day, up to up to today, up to literally to this moment that we're working here, because uh, you know we've really have complemented each other in so many different ways. So it's it's kind of important for people to understand that there is not there will never be one person that's going to be able to solve uh, a situation like a pandemic. It's that's, that's to me, what makes me feel very optimistic for the future, because I think that the, you know, the tools that we learned in the last couple of years, hopefully will help us to be better uh, for the future as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Andre. The, the, the teamwork, everybody coming together for a unified purpose has certainly been huge. I think hopefully a little later, we can talk a little bit more about some of the lessons that we've learned the last couple of years, because I'm packing some of that, I think is, I mean, you don't know where this is going, but that seems to be a stage that we're approaching is, uh, you know, what lessons did we learn and how can we apply those to the future? But um you're obviously well known uh, for infectious disease, especially in uh, amongst solid organ transplant recipients and, and research. How did you? Where did Andre Khalil come up with this as a career path? How did this? How did this start? If we go back in time, uh, you know, maybe just a couple years, right? Yeah. So <laughs> it is interesting, Rick. It's very interesting. You know, I mean, all these things take a turn that sometimes it, you know, we're not, you know, we're not really plan precisely um you know like a lot of things that happen in our lives correct so we we sometimes looking back everything looks very linear very beautiful oh you know i went here i went there and you know blah 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 and everything you know every step was planned and this was not planned at all coming to nebraska was not planned working with the solar and transfer was not planned so i was looking for jobs 
and 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 you know and it was really interesting because um, my wife is from the New England area, and both of us have never been in the Midwest whatsoever. I mean, the Midwest for us was as foreign as anything else, and you know, and so I was just looking for jobs and uh, doing some interviews, and um, and I came to uh, I came to Oma for uh, you know just for interview, kind of curious because again I've never heard about the uh, service here at the time. That was 19 years ago. And, uh, you know, so it was very interesting because I, I really didn't come with the idea that uh, that would be my final move. I, I came with the idea that would be, you know, one option of many options to, to think about for the future. Um, but I, I have to tell you, know, Rick, after my whole day of interviews here, uh, I, I just, I just, I don't know, I just got such a strong, positive impression of the place. It, it's hard to explain, you know, it, it's, it's one of the things that, you know, it's like when I was driving uh, one of my daughters to college a few years ago and, and you know, she would go in, you know, we, 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 we spent, you know, uh, uh, there was a summer where we just, we literally, I took the car and we went to several college, college visits way before the pandemic. And I was kind of striked by my daughter saying, oh, you know, literally walking to the place. And she's like, yeah, that's not my place. Like, what? <laughs> that's not my place. Like, I mean, we, we just, you know, we're here for like five minutes. I mean, you know, and so, you know, and then we went to another place. She's like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I love, I love, I love here. I, this is, this is. So, you know, it's funny because now, look, I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about this and I, you know, I, I, I look at my daughter and say, how can you, how can you just, how can you, I mean, how can you make such a fast decision like, you know, like this without really getting too in depth and everything else? And, and it's funny because now I'm like, I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about myself, you know, when I came to Nebraska, it was, was the same. It's kind of, you know, it's not like I knew the place. It's not like I knew everyone. I knew everything was happening here. I didn't. But by the end of the day, it was like, my gosh, I really like this place. I like the people. You know, the, everyone was so warm, so interesting, and, and and you know, and when you feel that that kind of legit, when you feel that kind of uh, you know, just people are interesting to interesting to know you, to understand you, to you know, to work with you. That that was weird. So I left and I left back and I, I went back home and I told my wife, well, you know, it's I, I really liked very interesting and then, and she's like, are, are you talking about Nebraska? Are you <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm talking about Nebraska. <laughs> East Coast, correct? So nothing, nothing besides East Coast exists, correct? So it's a, you know, and so I left and you know, she laughed and uh, we said, well, you know, I, let's see, you know, what's what happened. So. <clears throat> I was invited to, to come for a second review, and and by then we, uh, you know, both myself and my wife came here. And she, you know, and she really uh, got the same feelings. Very interesting. She's like, my, I really, you know, she, for some reason she got a very good feeling, and you know, and things move along to um, to. Our, but so by then, Rick, just coming back to the professional spectrum transfer. So by then, my my experience with transfer was uh, uh, pretty much limited to my fellowship and. And, and a little bit in the practice, but not, not too much. I mean, I really, it's not like, uh, you know, I was born to, to work with, uh, you know, with my immunocompromised patients, my transplant patients. I just, you know, I'm sure I liked the, the, the fact, the challenges of, of treating um, uh, this, this kind of, um, uh, you know, situation in my patients. But, but at the same time, it was, it, it was, was not something that I, uh, you know, was aiming for. I was just looking for something different, something challenging. And at that time, 
there was uh, a doc here that was uh, leaving the center that was doing most of the transplant. And then uh, um, and there was not too many people uh, really working uh, on, on, on this patient population. And so it became like a, a situation where it's like, well, you know, it's, uh, we need somebody that uh, will, uh, will be more focused on, on immunocompromised and transplant patients. And so it, it was, you know, it was definitely a situation where, uh, you, you know, relatively new, but not, you know, totally new, because again, we have some training during our fellowship, but um, it was, you know, it was definitely a learning curve in terms of trying to understand the needs uh, of these patients, but uh, it became really, uh, uh, you know, something incredibly important for me because I realized that um, these patients, uh, you know, most of them, especially with, with organ transplant, they they remain immunocompromised for the rest of their lives. Uh, what actually turned out to be critically important for what happened with COVID in the last two years, correct? So just uh, just this morning I was in a clinic seeing a patient that's a candidate for, for heart transplant. And, 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 you know, part of my conversation always when patients are being evaluated for a potential transplant is to make sure they understand, uh, you know, what's going to happen after the transplant in terms of infection, the risks and what kind of care they have to have. And it, it, what's interesting about this, Enrique, is that um, when, when, when the pandemic started, um, I always say that, you know, most of my patients actually were more prepared than the general population because being a transplant recipient, they really, uh, they have heard me and my team for many, many years uh, really preaching what's important for them is that they really have to protect themselves differently from everybody else because their immune system will need to be lower for the rest of their life in order to avoid the, the rejection of their new organ. Uh, so they're always more prone to infections. And, 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 and so even a little, a common cold, a little, something very, you know, mundane as people, you know, like a little common cold that we've had many, many times in our lives, it can be deadly uh, for a transplant patient. So, you know, most of our transplant patients before the pandemic, they were already, um, you know, pretty much uh, uh, educated in using masks when in public, um, uh, trying to, you know, gel, use alcohol gel in their hands when uh, they're dealing with people that, uh, you know, outside the house, outside home, other places, and, uh, you know, try to, to be careful in, in public places that were too crowded, like shopping malls, and especially in the winter times because of all the viruses. So basically, all this have been, you know, have been really part of our, our practice, educating our patients for literally for, you know, for 20 years. And, so interesting when the pandemic came, you know, the, the most of my patients were right to tell and said, Dr. Khalil, I mean, we, we already know what to do. We know the drill, correct? So we, <laughs> we, we you don't need to tell us again, but sure, you know, I had to tell again, it's like, hey, listen, COVID is here. So you got to be extra cautious, more cautious than usual. But, but it was, it was really great to see my patients telling my, telling me that, that they already felt very grateful that they were already, you know, really well uh, educated on, on how to prevent infection way before the pandemic, because that's how their life uh, really needs to be uh, taken care of. So uh, some ways that was kind of uh, a very interesting uh, twist of this whole situation. But the other twist in a week is that, as you know, and, and we've seen during the last, past, during the last couple of years, is that um, our immune compromised patients have been really... Uh, uh, you know, in a very vulnerable situation during this COVID-19 because they, you know, like because of their immune system having to be always on the lower side, it's way more difficult for them to really 
um, uh, respond to the vaccine. So they, they have a response, but not as strong of a response as before the transplant because their immune system cannot really have the amount that responds to the vaccine. So unfortunately, the vaccines are not as effective uh, in post-transplant as they would be before the transplant. Uh, so what happened is even though they have, you know, they have a partial protection from the vaccine, uh, it, you know, uh, during this pandemic, uh, they still are vulnerable to this virus. And so, uh, you know, it has been really heartbreaking seeing uh, some of my patients that were fully vaccinated still got the infection and quite ill in a hospital because they just could not really mount that response. And, 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 and you know, it's, it's heartbreaking to know that um, each one of them got, uh, you know, the virus from people that, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, didn't have the vaccine. This is this is before and after uh, we had availability of the vaccine. So, uh, so they become really um, victims of the fact that uh, you know, unfortunately, many people uh, were you know still getting infected. It's still uh, transmitting the infection. So, really hard, very difficult to see this uh, because they've they've done everything you know, super right, super you know, time doing everything that they could do. So. That has been really a rough, a really rough time for the last couple of years. For every patient has had a, a transplant in, in the whole planet. So, um, and they and they will remain to you know they will need to to keep really very very aware, very cautious about everything because, you know, let's say, in the best case scenario Rick, that uh, you know the pandemic is over next few weeks and and this all become an endemic, and, and, you know, like an endemic as people are, are predicting. I just hope for the best, everything really works well. If this virus becomes endemic, uh, uh, we, we have to remember that, that the virus is gonna, gonna still keep circulating, will still keep infecting people. Uh, and the people that are gonna be the most vulnerable are gonna be the unvaccinated and the immunocompromised. So that's basically, it's not gonna change, right? So the, the young kids that cannot be vaccinated or, the, uh, the elderly with comorbidities, immunocompromised. So, so the, the bottom line, even if this virus get into an endemic phase, um, unfortunately, the vulnerable, the vulnerable patients will still remain vulnerable. Let, let me just give an example. Sometimes people don't realize the difference between endemic and pandemic, like influenza has been endemic for a while. HIV has been endemic. Malaria has been endemic. So tuberculosis has been endemic. So tuberculosis still kills hundreds of thousands of people every year. Malaria, the same. Uh, so influenza, just before the pandemic, was killing something in the range of uh, uh, thirty to 50,000 people just in the U.S. Before the pandemic, influenza was killing you know incredible amount of uh, people. And so these are vulnerable people, mostly. Uh, and that includes, uh, includes our immune-compromised patients as well. So, so that means that even if COVID goes to an endemic phase, um, you know, our immune-compromised patients uh, will be still vulnerable to, uh, to this infection. So we're going to have to be always with uh, the guard very, you know, very, you know, kind of very up and very, very clear that uh, no matter what happened, uh, the care has to be continuous and, and, and permanent. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. And I think it points out that those of us that are fortunate to not be immune compromised or have those things, we have a role to play because if we don't get this illness, 
we're not going to spread it to others that are more at risk. And so I, I don't know how, if we can get that lesson out any stronger than what we've already tried. But obviously, um, I think people think that if the pandemic's over and this becomes endemic, that, oh, we're just back to everything's going to be okay and COVID's going to go away. But it's clearly not probably going to go away. And we're still going to see cases, as, as you said, and people are still going to have significant comorbidities and, and uh, you know, bad outcomes with it if they're in those risk uh, categories. Um, another thing that you do a lot of, I don't want to completely um, stop the train on what you're talking about, but I want to come back to that is uh, clinical research. So I assume that that probably started approximately 20 years ago when you came here as well. And obviously it's been a big, massive part of your career. Um, and so how did you get involved in that? And was that something that you came here knowing that you wanted to, to do as well? So, so Rick, you know, I, I came with the idea definitely that uh, it's something that I'd like to to learn and develop. So, not really too much background uh, as as you know as I'd like. I was again uh, very young at that time as well. So, uh, you know, not too much experience in anything, <laughs> but uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know the so 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 the reason why clinical research uh, it has been like. A, really a passion for me for so long is because, you know, because, because of, of our clinical work. So, you know, you know, uh, as I know that every time that we're taking care of our patients, uh, you know, we, we, we just, we provide everything that's possible, everything that we can, we, you know, our goal is, is literally just get our patients out of the hospital, get them better, get them, you know, to just go back to normal. And, but in order to do that, you know, we, we use something that's, it's called, standard of care, correct? So this is, this is what we all do. So we, we have our standards of care. So we have, you know, for certain disease, we have one standard for another disease, we have another standard for one infection, another infection, different antibiotics, different treatments. So, so there's many, many, you know, kind of different approaches. but this is as a group, we call standard of care. And what I learned very fast uh, in our practice here is that, you know, there's limits for standard of care, correct? There's no, there's no such thing as a perfect center of care because if they're all perfect, you know, nobody would be sick, correct? Everyone would be, you know, doing great, well, and done deal. It would be the perfect world, but it's unfortunate it's not. So I start to realize that there are lots of limitations in our center of care. And that's what got me motivated to say, you know what, um, we got to do something else. I mean, it's like, okay, we, you know, we, we are doing everything we can. The patient sometimes is not improving. But, but this is way more complicated than just saying, oh, you know, I'm going to get drug A, drug B, and whatever, drug C. But, you, you, you know, that's not how you find better, you know, better treatments, better diagnostics. Uh, you don't just start to throw different drugs or different things to see what's going to happen because some of the things uh, may end up harming uh, our patients. So, you know, it's a much more complex process. So instead of just giving drugs, as uh, a lot of people thought at the beginning of the pandemic, like what people would call sometimes off-label compassion. So let's give A, give, give B, give C. The problem that I see with that, and I saw that 20 years ago, that's why, you know, it's what happened with the pandemic is really not new in that sense that we do not, you know, it's not our job to uh, try, uh, you know, different experimental medications to see which ones work or not without being part of a whole research process. Because when you do that, uh, you never know if you're, you know, if you're benefiting or if you're harming the patients, right? Because when you start to give drugs that were never given for a certain disease process, uh, you know, as I always say, you know, if, if the, if the, if the patient, you know, if the patient dies 
because you know because of of you know of uh, of something that potentially was related to the treatment you gave people say oh you know it was it was it was it was the disease if the patient survives oh it was the drug so so you know there's no controls no research so so and you saw that during this pandemic let's risk people saying oh my gosh i found the i found the cure for covid you know i gave to 10 patients and it did great well you know, what do you mean you gave to the patient figure? What are the controls? How you compare it to what? And how you know that worked or not? How you know that people potentially didn't get harmed from this? So you don't know, right? So, so we have to really understand that there is the clinical care and there is the clinical research. And these are things that are, you know, they can definitely both be beneficial to our patients, but they have different ways to be worked. They have different ways to be really practiced. So in the clinical care, you really want to maximize the standard of care. You want to really say, you know what, I know the standard of care and I'm going to really maximize. I, you know, it's knowing, the, it's, it's knowing the, the entire background of the disease, is knowing the diagnostics, knowing the treatments. That's why we go to medical school, we go to residency, fellowship, all things. So, you know, you apply all that knowledge, your experience in order to improve the care of our patients. So that's a beautiful thing. It's absolutely essential and critical. But when it comes to clinical research, uh, we have to really provide safety to our patients. Safety means instead of giving drugs that are not known to be effective, that are not known to be safe, they cannot be given outside the context of a clinical trial. And what, what I mean about clinical trial, clinical trial basically is going to be a study in which you're going to have a group that's going to receive the treatment that may be beneficial, that you don't know if it is beneficial, in the other group, that's going to be what you call the control that, you know, most of the times uh, are going to be a group that's going to receive what's called placebo. Placebo is going to be a pill or an IV that's going to look the same as the experimental drug. So you don't know which one the patients are receiving. So placebo has almost a bad connotation. People say, oh my gosh, you know, I don't want a placebo. Oh my gosh, you know, I, I, if I get into this trial, don't give them a placebo, correct? So <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really interesting how bad, you know, it's, it's like, it's almost like swearing, you know, it's like, oh, placebo is a bad word, but placebo is, is what really protects our patients. Because think with me, this is really important. It's really, really important. Uh, so if you are in a in study in which the drug actually turns to be more harmful, than the controls that are received placebo, which group would you be? Would you like to be randomized to, to the experimental treatment or the placebo? Your answer would be, oh, put me in a placebo. I don't want a drug that's going to harm. Well, correct. But when you start the drug, when you start the trial, you don't know if the experimental drug will benefit or harm. So that's why the placebo is critical because the placebo may be better than actually the experimental drug, and we've seen that for the last 40, 50 years in. in in medicines, a lot of things that did not work well and actually end up harming. So, but then you say, why, why then you do the trial? Because in the trial, we have, we, we keep, we keep checking up, you know, every situation, every patient received either the placebo or the treatment. So we keep checking everything like regularly, we keep monitoring these patients. If we see any signal, anything that indicates that the experimental treatment actually is worse than placebo, the trial is going to be stopped. And this drug is not going to be given at all. It's done, done. You know, it's the whole thing finished. So there's, we're not going to propagate. We're not going to perpetuate the harm. While if you do not do the trial and you decide to say, you know what, this, I think this drug is cool. This drug is good. I think it should help my patients and you keep giving. As I say, if they die, you're going to say they die because of the disease, but actually they could be dying from the drug. You're never going to know if you don't have a control. You're never going to know if you don't have a clinical trial. 
So I think this is the, 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 the another big lesson that it's much older than the pandemic, but I think the pandemic brought this up in a way that uh, a lot of people are not aware of. The need for the placebo, the need for the control, the need for the clinical trial, because without this, today, we would have no proof therapies and safe therapies. We would have no vaccines. Every incredible vaccine that came in the last, uh, you know, in the last year or so, all of them, all they all are here for one reason, because we had clinical trials that were randomized, had placebo, and were double blind. I mean, nobody knew who was getting the vaccine or who was getting the placebo. So the only reason why you have the vaccines today is because we did the right science. The science was absolutely spot. And so I think this is, this is what I, you know, this is to me um, so motivational because, you know, in two years, we got new treatments and new vaccines using the very old fashioned scientific method, the randomized control, placebo control trial. I mean, this is you know, something we know for already probably half a century, but that the tool is really important. I think the other thing very important, Rick, that I want to emphasize in the beginning of the pandemic, and I do remember that in February of last year, February, between February and March 2020, once we announced that we were starting at the first uh, double-blind placebo control trial here, um, I, got, I got many threats, threats by phone, threats by mail, people saying that it's, it's crazy to do a randomized trial uh, in the middle of a pandemic, that, you know, that's not ethical, that we shouldn't be doing that. I remember quite well. Um, and, and, and that's why, you know, I end up like uh, writing papers on this and, and giving some interviews on this at that time. This is like we're talking about March 2020, trying to explain uh, to both our colleagues and to the public that actually, if you want to protect people from not being harmed from all these crazy drugs that people were trying, um, the randomized trial and the placebo control is the only way to really not only to protect our patients, protect people suffering from disease, but that's the only way for us to actually find out what works and what doesn't and what you know, other people are going to benefit from. So, so it was, to me, what was so logical for almost 20 years, because you know, that's what we've done here at the University of Nebraska for all this time, so much clinical research, so much new things we discovered that actually it was not so logical for a lot of people in the beginning of the pandemic. So really it was something that um, I realized that uh, it, you know, would require education, communication, understanding, uh, and, and I think we, we, you know, we made a lot of progress, but still there's a lot of misunderstanding out there, Rick, of, uh, you know, why it is so important to have a control. It's so important to have a placebo because it's not simply because, you know, you have some crazy scientists trying to do some crazy stuff. No, this is actually the best way to protect our patients. Placebo is the best way to protect our patients. Now, in the last two years, we already know several of the drugs that were being given before the trials did not work or harmful. We already know this. This is something we know for two years. We're not talking about for 50 years. And the only way we know that some of these drugs harmed is because uh, we did randomized trials. Uh, the only way we know that some of these drugs are now effective and part of what our new standard of care is because we did the randomized trials. So there's, there's, there's no ways to shortcut the science. If you know, shortcutting the science is shortcutting the the care of our patients. We cannot do this. To me, this is, it's, it's, it's sacred. You know, the care of our patients is sacred. The safety of our patients is safe. There is nothing that's going to be more important for me. And that's why, in my mind, coming back to, you know, the last 19, 20 years, clinical research became really a complement to clinical care because 
when I know that, you know, I can provide the best clinical care, when I know that I can combine the best clinical care with the best clinical research and find new things for my patients and for future patients, that's unbeatable. That's unbeatable because now you really have, a, a, you know, a win-win situation. Win-win because you're providing not only a good clinical care, but you're adding something beyond the clinical care that's really going to help our patients. So that to me is, is, is the big motivation, Rick, for all this last 19 years here. That's great. So I want to go back to something you said about the, all of the clinical trials that have been done during the pandemic, which there have been quite a few, um, and how that has played into the media and mis and disinformation. Um, I know oftentimes you'll see a big headline with um, something that's been plucked out of a study that is out of context, and then that creates confirmation bias. So can you talk a little bit about that and how um, maybe to protect yourself from that as an individual in the public? Yeah, no, great question, Sarah. Very fantastic question. Very uh, difficult as well. I mean, not easy because, you know, there's so much uh, misunderstanding of, uh, of the science. And I think what happened too, you know, Sarah, is that uh, a lot of times people, a lot of these studies uh, came out so fast. Um, and so first, first, first of all, I mean, important, you know, when, when a new study come by, uh, a lot of these studies were published in what's called a preprint mode, meaning that they were not even peer reviewed, correct? So, so the idea here was to, um, uh, you, you know, to speed up the process of, of the, you know, the results uh, get out to the public, uh, you know, as fast as possible. So I think the intent is good. The intent to bring science as fast as possible is fantastic. I think there's nothing wrong with this. I think that the problem that happened during the pandemic is that a lot of these studies uh, were uh, not really good quality. A lot of them were really poor quality uh, that that end up with a very quick, um, you, you know, kind of uh, publicity. And, 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 and so right away before even the study was peer reviewed, because, you know, just for the public to understand, peer review means that, when a study goes for a publication, uh, especially these large, you know, studies and trials, they go before they get published. They they have to go through a peer review process in which several reviewers that work in similar areas blindly will evaluate the paper, will criticize the paper, will try to understand the reliability of the findings, uh, trying to find the limitations of the study. And all this is actually returned to the authors. The authors actually have to address all these comments from the peer reviewers, uh, you know, usually uh, modified in a way that they can improve the paper, the report, they can correct mistakes, um, recognize the limitations. And then after all this, it gets into, you know, to the editor and gets accepted. So it is, it is a you know, it is a you know, it is a process that takes you know sometimes a few weeks or longer. But the point is, and the idea in, in the beginning of the pandemic is like, well, you know what, uh, we gotta just get this out. We gotta get this out. So what happened is the good news is that you can get the results out fast. The bad news is that you know all the garbage that was you know that would be ca- would be cut up by the peer reviewers and by the journals was was already out. So what happened is that that in these last two years that a lot of reporters and even pretty, you know, experienced reporters and, 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 and clinicians and physicians and researchers were sometimes caught off guard when they saw the new result coming out uh, without any peer review. So now everyone, including the public, has to play the peer reviewer. And, and most people don't have, unfortunately, don't have, you know, kind of the, 
the specific knowledge to, to kind of do the peer review, to do the critique. So that's that's the job of somebody that usually is an expert in the subject. So now everyone is 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 making their own interpretations from 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 reporters, journalists to to lay people, to physicians, to researchers, to everyone, right? So, so in what happened is in a situation like this, all of us are gonna have, I'm gonna see things a little bit different. And coming to your point, Sarah, what happened is, you know, a lot of times we all have our own biases, you know, it's part of being a human being. And you're gonna read in the, in the you know, you're gonna, you're gonna read the paper through the lens of whatever you believed before, whatever you knew before, somebody else is gonna read a little bit different and became pretty messy because now, you get bombarded with with all kinds of message, social media, media, whatever, and you know everyone tells something different about the same paper. And so, so, in, so that really has been uh, a, a very complicated process throughout the last two years because this really has we we've not had a a a you know a process that really at least uh, you know evaluates the the, the the science to say okay well you know what this is. You know, this is a good quality study. This is a study that we really should take very seriously because that's going to help us to understand better what's happening with the pandemic. So, uh, so that really become uh, became really a big problem last year. So, the first thing I would tell uh, to people that want to know a little bit more about the reliabilities, um, if the paper was not peer reviewed, uh, uh, you take with a you take with one kilogram of salt. Right. So you got to be careful because what happened is you just you know you you just still don't know. The reliability uh, of the quality of the paper, you know, so that's very important. Second of all, if you believe that there's uh, a science or a new paper or something, a new study that potentially could be uh, could be relevant to to you as individual, uh, to you as a person that um, has, you know, some interest either either as 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 a patient or as a professional, try to reach out to. Um, sources to people that really have the expertise to give you at least, uh, you know, a, the best, the, the most optimal interpretation of the study. So uh, go for, uh, you know, go for places where you have the expertise. For in this case, in our state, look, you know, look for UNMC, uh, reach out to UNMC or UNMC docs, um, your UNMC scientists, uh, look, you know, look, just get everyone to our nurse practitioners, our, you know, our, our physician assistants, everyone that's working here together. So reach out to us, people that you know, people that, um, you know, are, you know, part of our community. And we can help you out to sometimes understand and translate these things. And, and if you don't see us changing our practice because of a new study that was just published and it was just in the media, it's because likely because we still need some time to see if that's something that is really applicable to us here in Omaha. So this is very important. So, so we, all of us are looking 24 seven for everything that is coming out in terms of new science, but we will not simply, um, you know, we will not simply take things that come um, out, um, um, you know, just because it came out, correct? So for us, uh, the number one thing is make sure that all all of our community, everyone here, is is really receiving the most safe, the safest, and the most effective therapies and preventions. In order to that, you're gonna have to give us uh, at least some trust as as yes as people in the community that are really dedicated to the healthcare, to the delivery of health. Uh, University of Nebraska really is the best place for you to look for in terms of a, you know, what to do with all this new science in our local place. In other states would be the same, look for their universities, look for their um, state public health. So it's, it's really, 
it's not easy, you know, Sarah. I have to tell. I mean, I, I wish I, I, it was. I, I could give you a a very uh, uh, you, know, you know very you know kind of more like black and white uh, response, but I don't. I think it's all of us have to keep looking for sources that we trust, uh, sources that are neutral, and sources that have the expertise on on science and medicine. Uh, and and I think universities, local universities in each state, are going to be probably one of your best sources. That's great. Yeah. Thanks, Andre. That's a, a great answer. I mean, and, and, you know, trying to, we talked about unpacking some of the lessons learned from the pandemic and you've touched on a lot of these, but I think, you know, one of the ones that you were so right on early on, as you mentioned earlier, was the need to do those randomized controlled trials in a pandemic. It's not easy. There was lots of people that were maybe against doing that because there was all kinds of anecdotal reports of, of things working. But one of the things I'm most proud of is uh, being here at University of Nebraska is, is that, uh, you know, we didn't take those anecdotal reports. We didn't change our treatment guidelines or anything that we did based on those. We went with what the science was was dictating to us and what you and multiple other colleagues had done in trials and, and everything else. And, and we put together our guidelines and they were based on the information that we felt was good information at that moment in time and not just based on a report or something, some anecdote or something somewhere. And I think that uh, that's another lesson learned from this whole pandemic. No, I, I, you're bringing a fantastic point, Rick. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, we've been, we've, we've, if people, people can probably go back and, and see our guidelines, you know, they're all public. We, you know, we, we, all of them uh, were, you know, we've, we've updated our guidelines for the last two years here for, you know, prevention and treatment. And, 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 and Rick, I mean, I, I'll just uh, endorse every single word you said in the sense that we, we work together, our division of infectious disease with every other division in the hospital, everyone, all these, you know, pharmacy, nursing, um, you know, everyone, hospitalists, pulmonary critical care, you know, everyone, internal meds, everyone, all of us that were, you know, really involved in the clinical care of these patients, uh, all of us work together to make the best guidelines, the best recommendations to treat our patients. And we never fell prey of these, uh, these uh, really uh, inappropriate reports of, oh, you know, today you should give drug X, tomorrow you should give drug, drug, drug Y, tomorrow you should, you know, give drug Z. So no, we never fell prey to Thanks God. And looking back, a lot of the things were were really not safe at all. I mean, and I think we never got into that. So we, in in you know, I'm very proud to tell you that uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of other places, not only in our country and outside the country, were already creating protocols based on zero science. And and I'm 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 so proud to say that everything we brought here was really based on you know, the best science available at that time. Every time you know, things have changed, things has evolved. And that's what science is. Science evolves, science adapts. You know, we keep moving, moving forward, right? But we never, never, uh, never got into a situation where we would be coming up with something completely, uh, you know, um, uh, out of the scientific field because, you know, that's really a situation where you run into uh, unprotecting our patients and protecting our patients have been a priority of, of our whole place. So I'm incredibly proud. And, you know, and it's really fantastic to me, Rick, looking back, you know, from the very beginning of the pandemic uh, that uh, all our guidelines um, were, you know, even looking back now, looking at things have changed. Uh, all of them were incredibly 
incredibly appropriate, incredibly strict about uh, giving to our patients what we, you know, we believe it at a time that was the best understanding of the science. And, and believe me, looking back, um, I would say uh, we, we got right the vast majority of the times. I mean, all of us, nobody's perfect. All of us have done mistakes. I mean, there's not a single human being that has not done mistakes uh, during their life and especially during these last two years. But I think that, um, as I always say, you know, it, it's the key point here is you want to see, you want to find people, you want to trust in people that are trying to do all this, uh, what's going to be you know, mostly right. And, and some things are not going to be perfect, but you know what? That's what it is. We are still learning. We are still, it's very humbling what's going on during this pandemic. But uh, when you look back and say, you know what? This was the right thing to do. And we did right. Uh, it, it's fantastic because I think the reason for that is because we worked so together. We worked so much as a team. Uh, there was not a single person in our institution saying, well, you know, that's what you should do. This is what you should not do. There was not a single person. So we were so together uh, to find the best ways uh, to treat our patients, to treat our communities. So uh, I'm very proud, Rick. I think that's really nothing is going to beat this. And I think uh, we are stronger today than we've ever been before. And, and, and I'm, I'm very proud and very optimistic. Awesome. So I am curious, actually from both of you, um, what was your experience with dealing with patients in some of these experimental treatments? Did you get a lot of patients that would come in and say, well, my cousin that lives in Texas got drug X and I want that. Um, and it wasn't really a recommendation. So Rick, you want to start? You want to start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think everybody that's done some of this has uh, has has had this happen. Um, you know, in the trials, actually, when I worked in the vaccine trials, which is mostly where, where I was involved in, the pe- people that actually coming to the trial were actually pretty motivated. Um, I want to reiterate kind of what Andre said earlier, that all of them were hoping they weren't in the placebo arm of the vaccine trial. I think because we had a pretty good idea that the vaccine that we were, were trying was going to be effective. Um, and so I think everybody wanted to get that and wanted to get that as soon as possible. Um, so they were motivated and they didn't ask for other treatment. Now, the patients in the hospital, I think were a little different story because a large portion of them were unvaccinated people after the vaccines were available outside of the patients that Andre normally takes care of who maybe didn't have a good response to the vaccine. So they were, um, they were, there were times when they would request uh, treatments that we did not think were effective and in some cases even knew were harmful. Um, and so we simply just, uh, and we, you have to try to talk to them and, and tell them that it's not something that we offer. We believe in, in the science and what the science tells us. And these are the effective treatments that we have available here. And this is what we're going to, you know, move forward with. Now it's not always easy. The conversations get hard sometimes. Um, and there's a lot of passion around this and the, the, our country's divided. That's for sure on the approach to this and the treatments for this. And again, even doing the trials, uh, you know, people think, why do we even have to do these trials? We know that this drug works because so-and-so says it works, you know? Um, so I think it was, it, there's definitely been times it's difficult. I mean, in our role, at least in my role, we've been a little bit shielded from it because I'm not out there every day seeing the patients like our hospitalists or our critical care docs have. But I know that there has been a lot of that. And, and I'll let Andre comment if he's got anything else. You know, it's, it's, it's right, right, you know, right on the mark, uh, Rick. So the, 
you, I've in Saudi, and I've I've faced the situations both uh, both as 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 a research person enrolling patient trials, but as a clinician as well, taking care of patients. So I've, I've in both situations I've had I've had families uh, and patients asking for uh, drugs that were not really part of the UNMC guideline. Uh, you know, my my approach has been uh, quite transparent, quite honest. You know, Sarah. I mean, basically, I would say, listen, um, I would explain. Why, you know, why uh, UNMC is not using a drug X or drug Y? Uh, I would explain that the number one reason is because we are not using the drugs because uh, we don't know how safe it is. And, and I would explain the potential side effects because, you know, all of the drugs have been used for different things in the past. Some of the drugs have horrendous side effects. Um, so I would explain the absence of science, I would explain the safety issues because all these drugs can be quite unsafe in a disease, in a new disease like this one. A drug that works for a, an old disease does not necessarily mean that the drug is going to work in a new disease. So, you know, the drug really is very specifically driven for very specific infectious disease. So we can never make, we, we can never make the assumption that's going to be the same for other infections because that really is the wrong assumption. Uh, safety is a huge problem. And, and, and usually I would be really honest saying, listen, if, if I was in the shoes of your loved one, if it was my wife, if it was my kids, I would never, ever give this drug because I do not believe this drug is going to help. And I do believe this drug may harm. And, and, and I think that to me, it, it was just literally uh, being as honest as I could be and Honestly, uh, I've never had uh, many issues uh, to a point where, you know, we would be, um, you know, in a, in a very difficult situation. Once we had this kind of conversation, you know, uh, it, people would really understand. And, and, and most of the time, Sarah, they'd say, oh, my gosh, I never, I never heard that actually uh, that there are safety issues with these drugs. I never heard that these drugs may not work at all. I never heard that actually um, a doctor telling me that, um, you know, that's what they would do for their loved ones. So, so I think, you know, I, with the time, I, you know, it, it was always a learning process to me to communicate, you know, how I understood the process. But, but I think as long as you do that, you know, with the utmost respect for people's different opinions, understanding that they have, you know, absolutely all the rights to uh, voice their concerns and their suggestions. Um, I, I want to make sure they understand that, you know, I am the advocate for the patient. I am the absolutely utmost advocate for my patients and I'll do everything possible to protect them. And, 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 and as long as that feeling gets out, uh, usually people are really, uh, you know, very manable to understand and, 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 and to move forward and, and, and find a consensus. And, and so I think that's what it takes. But, you know, Sarah, it's in the middle of a pandemic, Sometimes it, these conversations, uh, you know, just are, are very difficult because, as you can imagine, some of the first wave and the second wave, uh, it, you know, we a lot of times it was phone calls. You know, we, we didn't even have the possibility to see the people sometimes if it was a relative or a family because they couldn't come to the hospital. You know, I remember all the isolation issues and everything, especially in the first wave was so difficult. People were so isolated. Um, so, um, so, you know, it's not only a communication, uh, important communication issue that we have to have between patient and doctors and, 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 and families. But also, um, I think we were somewhat deprived from being able to communicate better, you know, uh, you know, kind of face-to-face -face in the first and second waves. And then, I mean, with the time we learn 
different ways to communicate, different ways to, you know, we start to use more, um, uh, you, you know, uh, computer Zooms and, and different ways to interface with family and then parents and, and, and relatives and, you know, and, and children and everything else. So everyone that was involved in the family, we were able to kind of have a little bit of a better a better communication, but it, it took several months during the pandemic for all of us to learn how to best communicate in a way that would be safe for the families, safe for the healthcare workers. Uh, but I, I'll tell you, Sarah, I mean, I think this is another, another lesson from this pandemic is that uh, communication is more important than ever. I mean, we really have to make the effort to understand each other's needs and, and to make sure that we all are, you know, have the same goal is is to save lives, to make people's lives better. This, it's absolutely the same between ourselves and everyone else in the community, our families, our patients. We, we have one goal. The one goal is, is really you know, to do better, to defeat this, uh, this pandemic and, and move forward. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, and again, I, I think that's a very important lesson about this. I mean, I know myself, and I'm assuming you as well. You said you were new to Twitter before we got on here. Those are new modes to communicate with the world that the world uses all the time that I don't think we were prepared for the way that we were going to have to educate people using those. It's, it's, it's a new thing. I mean, we have a couple people in our division that are very, um, very effective at using this as a means of communication. And I'm sure there's lots of people all over the place that are, but me personally, I mean, I, I look at it and, you know, occasionally we'll put something on there, but it's the, it's the future. It's the way you get information out there. It's the way the disinformation was spread. And so we have to do a, a great job of spreading the factual information and why we're doing just like the communication you said, we can do it on a person to person basis and that's maybe effective for that person, but we need to get it to everybody and use like what we're doing today to get out to the masses. Yeah, absolutely critical, Rick. It's, it's very humbling. As you said, you know, I think we, we, we were prepared for the one-to-one talk uh, since medical school, you know, it's such important thing for us to really, uh, you know, sit and understand and, and, and really communicate with our patients and our families. But um, it, this became like a much, you know, a much bigger mm-hmm. public uh, health issue that goes beyond the bedside, beyond the, you know, the hospital. Uh, and, and I think for all of us, it was absolutely, it was, it was a new, it was a new learn in terms of communication. And, and I, and, and, and I definitely I'm, I'm feeling that uh, we will keep learning about this, you know, Rick, because it's, it's, if we don't communicate properly and transparently, um, uh, we unfortunately, uh, you know, we, we just give more room for misinformation and misinformation has been really uh, a major problem during this pandemic. Uh, really sad because I think misinformation has led to a lot of harm. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, our job is really to, to bring the factory, as you said, the factory information to help people. And, and um, it, believe me, I'm never going to stop. This is going to be the rest of our lives to really make sure that the message is not only given one-to-one uh, when we are here in the hospital, but the message is given properly and factually um, outside to the public as well. So that's definitely another lesson from, from us for us. I know I, for one, am very grateful for technology, but I wish I would have bought stock in Zoom before the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know uh, your time is very valuable, Dr. Khalil, and I appreciate you coming on to the show to join us today. Uh, It's been great getting to learn a little bit about you and what you do. 
Yeah, one last question for you. You know, you're relatively new to Twitter, and I'm sure you noticed about a week or two ago that your office was trending on Twitter. Um, that was pretty awesome, and, they, and everybody was commenting on the, the the you have some characters and you have a special chair and everything else that was it, it, any significance behind that. You like uh, uh, Marvel and and I think what what is it like Star Wars or somebody or Star yeah, Trek? Yeah, Star it's Trek. A sorry, dark. my light is off in the back. I have Star Wars, I have Spider Man, everything. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, you know, it is funny. Uh, you know, I think all of us care a little bit of our you know, childhood for the rest of our lives. You know, I, I grew up reading Spider-Man and uh, watching Star Trek, the original Star Trek as well. And, um, you know, it's just so much fun. Uh, I, I think it keeps me grounded a little bit. You know, it's kind of, uh, it, it really helps me to lighten up a little bit, uh, helps me to, you know, uh, to make fun of myself. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, I learned to not take myself so seriously. I think that's so important, you know, because, you know, we are all fallible, uh, you know, and, 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 and as long as we understand our limitations, I think we can be much better human beings. Um, you know, and it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm learning day by day. And, and I think, you know, all this fun superhero stuff and Star Trek, it's just, it's just fun. It gives a little bit of that perspective that actually, you know, a lot of the things that we believe when we were kids, actually, they, they tend to be very important when we're adults as well. So, um, you know, so it's it, you know, after having three kids, I can tell you that, uh, you know, it's it's really humbling how much they teach you. They are still teaching me. So, uh, you know, we you know, when we don't have kids, you think, oh, you know, kids are like, oh, you know, they're just, you know, small little human beings. They know nothing. You know, they have no idea what to do, whatever. Oh, my gosh. They are so much smarter than you ever think. They are so incredibly smart. And so, and I think to me was, um, it, you know, keeping that a little bit of that childhood uh, gives me that perspective, you know, don't, it, it does not allow me to, to lose too much in adulthood. I think it's good that we can keep a little bit of our childhood for the rest of our lives. It's, it's a healthy thing, I guess. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us and discussing everything today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for the opportunity. Have a good day. Yes. Thank you so much. And for all of our listeners out there, we will catch you next time on Dirty Drinks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at Dirty underscore Drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.